If you haven't already, sign up for my weekly newsletter. Along with receiving updates about each new episode, you will also get one actionable insight every Saturday to boost your career, fund, or startup. My newsletter is value-packed authentic and full of unique insights. This newsletter is also the best way to join our growing community of climate investors. We found that building a community is probably the ultimate force multiplier and it gives us the momentum we need to create profound change. Let's share and collaborate. I'm just here to empower you to get started and set you on a path to success so our collective ideas can flourish and expand. Come join us to drive huge impact. Welcome to Climate Insiders, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the climate revolution. My name is Johan Berno, and I'm on a mission to shake things up. It is time we get serious and address this climate crisis. In each episode, I'll provide a platform for top climate thinkers, entrepreneurs, and investors to share their insights, innovations, and contrarian views. Let's learn from visionary thought leaders and hear their ideas that can profoundly reshape society and bring us one step closer to a sustainable world. In today's show, I'm receiving Arman Anaturk, the co-founder of Hack Capital. Hack Capital supports impact-driven founders, funders, and managers with their capital raises with a host of tools. Arman is a super inspiring guy. You've probably seen him on LinkedIn post really valuable uh, content. And in this conversation, we talk about working with intensity and how to bring balance to your work life, managing your LinkedIn presence and popping out this glass ceiling that prevents you from putting your word out there, how to grow your brand, drive more people to invest in climate tech, by using inspiration. We also talk about becoming an angel investor in climate, the expectations that you should have, helping out founders early on when it comes to time allocation, when it comes to your role. We also give captable tips and tricks and whether you should actually give shares of your fund or business to advisors early on. And we speak about the future of Hack Summit, the annual conference organized by Hack Capital. And finally, tips for people to penetrate the climate tech space when they still think that they are outsiders. Let's go. Alman, welcome to Climate Insiders. Johan, thanks for having me. I want to start personal because I, I really like you and what you do and Hack Capital, but I want to get hear about you as a person first before we get serious. In one word, how would your best friend describe Alman Anatok? Intense. Intense, well, <laughs> in a positive way. In, hopefully in a positive way, definitely sometimes in a negative way. I think I've heard her from family, friends, uh, co-founders, intense is what seems to come up quite often. And more and more, the older I get, I decided to just own up to that. Uh, first, I thought it was a negative, And now I just think intensity helps drive things forward. If you have a strong mission, vision, uh, being intense can help push that in the right direction. And let's see if uh, I get more intense over time, or maybe I can cool it down. Intensity, I also learned that as a strength. But it can be a little bit of a weakness at times, right? Because you probably flirt, you know, or you, you navigate very closely to the burnout line mm -hmm. if you push yourself on the intensity. How do you cope with that? How do you bring balance in your life? It's a very fair point. And actually, I enjoyed listening to your podcast last week with Jacqueline from Carbon Equity, where you talked about some of these topics. Uh, I think there mm -hmm. is always this complicated question of can you balance work life? And then if you are an intense person, which a lot of founders, investors are, Uh, how can you avoid getting to burnout? Honestly, I think I'm still trying to discover that. I don't think I've had burnout in the way that others have had, but I sort of define burnout as when you're putting so much effort in, but the reward isn't as great as the effort, then you reach a point where you feel frustrated. 
And that frustration causes you to uh, have a burnout. I think everybody has different definitions. The way I do that is just try to really align the work that I'm doing to a higher purpose that drives me. So whether it's a good week, a bad week, some things have gone well, some things have gone wrong, the overall mission and moving the needle towards that mission keeps you motivated to work seven days a week. And then also balance it out with time with the family, uh, sports, and then taking that intensity also to to other activities outside of work, which for me is usually some level of fitness. Uh, take that energy, put it into really moving my body and letting my mind rest a little bit and getting to that meditative state of uh, still intensely output, but resting else part, another part of my body. But what are you doing? I know you're someone who who approaches things with intensity, what tips would you have for me? I'm, I would say my true nature is not that intense. I mean, I'm a, I used to be a very shy guy, you know, not overexposing myself. I've kind of learned that in Silicon Valley, you know, because that you're surrounded by intense intensity. And so uh, now I'm trying to bring balance back. And that is exactly how you describe, you know, trying to force moments of calmness, of meditation, um, of physical activity and hanging out with people with no intention whatsoever. You know, you have no agenda. That's those kind of settings. And that is naturally uh, creating the, the sort of valve to st- let the steam out. Because otherwise, the volcano just kind of build up and then blows up. You don't want that to happen. So, uh, And I agree with you that working in something that you're so passionate about that drives change, it is the best way to channel your intensity. And also, that makes it so much more sustainable long term. I mean, if you're not passionate about what you do, that stuff is going to burn you down. Exactly. I think people always put a negative for those who work hard or those who are very intense about their job. I know that I have friends or family members who may be surprised by the intensity and the the time we spend working. But I think it's the other side is if you're enjoying what you're doing and it feels like play, or of course, it never really always is that in between of play and work. uh, There's nothing wrong with working hard. There's nothing wrong with being intense about your job. If you're working in a job that you don't like and you feel that it's high effort and you feel this intensity isn't uh, deserve to the specific role that you're in, then of course you're going to be frustrated. But it's, if you can align it to something that you love and uh, a mission that you are driving forward, I think uh, go all in and don't don't hear what others are saying about uh, you're working too hard or you're being too intense about it. Right. No, you're you're exactly right. And now for people in climate tech and others outside of it, you most people are familiar with brand names such as Breakthrough, such as Lower Carbon, some of the top uh, venture funds. But there is an emerging brand that is starting to, you know, make uh, ripples and it's called Hack Capital. So could you describe for people that don't fully know you, kind of a brief introduction about the platform and your mission? Absolutely. Happy to. And really nice to hear our names alongside some industry legends. So I appreciate that. Uh, Hack is three different things in the Hack universe. We have the communities, which we're most known for, uh, Food and Climate Hack, which are events hosted in 40 cities across the world. Today, you're in Barcelona. We have meetups there. Most of the time, you're in Berlin. We have events there all around SF, uh, North America, Europe, even Asia. We have these food and climate tech events that bring together the local ecosystem. Every year, bringing around 10,000 people through our doors. Usually, they're operators, investors, or aspiring climate enthusiasts who want to join the ecosystem. They can find an event in their city and start networking with other climate-minded people. That's our bread and butter, and that's where we started and allowed us to launch the second part, which is insights. So thanks to this global community we have, we're able to speak to smart people like yourself or others who are building amazing technology and amazing companies and the investors who are writing the checks into them. 
that led us to launch an insights platform where we share everyday knowledge about climate tech and distill it into a very easy way to understand. For those who don't know anything about climate tech, trying to break into this space can be very daunting. And we think in order to reduce that barrier to entry, have more people come into this space, we need to speak to people as they'd like to be spoken, not speak to executives and insiders. And so insights allows us to do that. And the last side where I really focus most of my time is capital. Uh, we have this mission to unlock billions towards capital, uh, unlock billions towards impact. In order to do that, we see that we need to arm the capital allocators with the right tools so that they can do their own investment strategies. And by, do, by allowing funds and managers and syndicates and angel investors to structure investments, we can move far more capital towards the impact sector. And those three, capital insights and community go hand in hand under the hack universe. That's awesome. And you guys have demonstrated the velocity, that intensity where you're pushing things out, you're probably breaking things along the way, but it is enable you to, enabling you to just iterate very quickly. Uh, there's definitely, you've reached probably an inflection point in the last years. Do you see this evolving? How do you see this evolving? Completely democratizing access so that anyone virtually can get access to deals and invest or, or is it still going to remain mostly a niche you know, for high net worth individuals? It's a great question. And I know it's something that you love to ask and some a personal mission of yours as well. So I'd love to hear your opinion. But on our mm -hmm. side, we did come with that perspective of let's democratize access to climate tech investing. As we went through that process of seeing what would that actually look like, i.e. bringing retail investors into private market climate opportunities, there are so many cost complexities and, and unnecessary risk to structuring investments for retail investors in the private markets, something that we thought is too big of a battle for us to focus on right now. It is our long-term vision to allow anybody to invest into great climate tech companies and, uh, and get rewards from private markets, early stage investing. But right now we're really focused on tackling high net worth individuals, asset managers and funds. So more so institutional and ultra high net worth investors. We can really go into specificities if you want, but when you start structuring investment products for retail investors, there's a whole level of additional risk and discourse and regulations that you have to take on. And that just makes it very difficult to operate a model where you're working with unprofessional small ticket investors at such a high volume for little, uh, less uh, overall capital deployed per person with the additional risk. All those three mean that uh, it's something we still want to do. We still believe in doing it, but something we might push to uh, later on in our years. Yeah, that's 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 absolutely right. You are the legal side. You have you're backed by experienced lawyers. So that's you, you can kind of figure it out. One of the benefits I see being European on this side of the Atlantic is that we do not need to be accredited, right? So mm -hmm. this accreditation, which is an insane barrier to entry for most U.S. Uh, taxpayers that are not mil millionaires, effectively, w would you would you confirm that uh, being an in a European investor is actually easier? That makes it easier to invest and become angel investors. Every jurisdiction has its own complexities. We use a Luxembourg vehicle, so we have to adhere to the Luxembourg law where investors do have to be accredited or at least self-accredited. Um, so they have to either be professional investing in the industry. I'd say Europe is almost harder in some ways for a platform like us to grow because every country has its own jurisdiction, its own uh, financial intermediary uh, governance who checks on to make sure every, everything's being done by the book, whereas US just has the SEC. And so dealing with one party versus dealing with multiple parties across Europe uh, is easier and is a reason why I think some of these platforms that have worked really well in the US struggle to launch here because of that uh, 
different jurisdictions trying to scale a blitz scale like they do in the US, which is easy state by state, is much harder country to country. So I wouldn't necessarily agree in terms of the investor perspective as well. It can be complicated to invest into companies as a non-accredited individual. And that's something I hope in time changes. We're doing some work on the lobbying side, and I know a few others are as well. We'd love for it to be easier for everyday people to be able to invest into private market companies because that's where we can get the biggest upside. And uh, let's see what happens in the next few years. Yeah, that's right. I find platforms like WeFunder that have really taken the the, the average ticket down to 100, you know, in the hundreds of dollars, but it's a different legal structure, right? So it's not straight equity investments, but I really hope so too. And since we're talking about scaling, I've seen that in the years of social media, LinkedIn is probably the platform to scale. And since you have a, a pretty sizable LinkedIn following and other social media channels, I, I was wondering how much of how, how have you successfully converted that online engagement into real world investors for Hack Capital? Is, does it translate very naturally, organically, or what's your? I appreciate hack? that, and and yeah, what's our hack when it comes to LinkedIn growth? <laughs> uh, I think it's being authentic and sharing value first. I know last week we touched on you had Jacqueline on the podcast, and I think she's done a fantastic job as mm-hmm. well. Uh, reaching different people through her community and rallying them towards uh, her mission and whether that's directly through carbon equity or just exposure to the climate topics yourself as well you run the program uh, the course you have your syndicate and you have this podcast and i think more and more we see the value of building an audience in order to drive people towards uh, the causes that you have and that's something that i naturally just ended up doing I love to write. It was actually the only topic I was good at in school. I think everything else I did pretty poorly in except for my ability to, to write, uh, which is quite surprising. And I took it to LinkedIn. I just started writing posts about things I was learning along the way. So start off with learning about complex topics in food tech. I would research them. I would distill them and then start sharing them into a LinkedIn uh, format size, however long the posts are. People seem to like that, did more of it. And that rallied people around this whole area of learning about climate tech in an easier to way understand in easier to understand uh, way i think how i approach linkedin is is this post going to be valuable to the audience that i'm speaking with and will they make their job easier in understanding a topic that i'm passionate about if yes i'm happy to share it and then hopefully it resonates with an audience and that audience and that uh, uh, sort of trust i was able to capture by putting out these uh, post about different topics in climate tech, then transferred into people thought I had some level of alpha or understanding in the market, and therefore they were happy to put their capital behind me. So when it comes to building a syndicate and getting people to open up their wallets, it's all about trust and rapport. Whatever you're doing to drive that trust and rapport, whether it's LinkedIn posts, content pieces, going to events, meeting people, all of that can help because at the end of the day, you got to tell angels and high net worth individuals you should believe that I have some level of understanding or knowledge in the space and I can put your capital in the right place. And I think LinkedIn was a great medium for that. Yeah. And actually, I want to double click on this because I, I, selfishly, I'm, I'm always interest, interested to hear how other uh, you know, active LinkedIn writers kind of operate and in their zone of comfort. Because that took me way out of my comfort zone when <laughs> I started. I had to burst that bubble, you know, break that glass ceiling because um, I putting myself out there it, was, it took me years and I was wondering whether you had to uh, undergo the same transformation. And for me, it kind of the aha moment I experienced is when I, I dissociated myself from the virtual mm-hmm. identity 
which is kind of the narrative that you're trying to tell. And you absolutely should start from a, a point of value add, right? Sharing great, insightful values, but it is still, you know, piece of you that you're putting out there. And for me, that dissociation between I am the, the real life me in, you know, the way I hang out, you know, with my friends, it doesn't have to be the same. It's not transposed, you know, uh, it's like not a copy paste on, on the virtual world. I wonder whether you had to undergo the same kind of transformation and, and any hacks for people that are still, you know, uh, um, not willing to expose themselves and take that accountability. I think it's just write it make the post and, and press publish. So I think in the beginning, I was writing posts more to find my own crowd. I don't, I didn't feel that I was personally surrounded by individuals in the ecosystem who uh, were interested in the same topics as me. So I was writing as a way to reach others who might also enjoy my hobbies and therefore uh, we can nerd out about it. And I, I think a lot of people, before they press the publish, they've probably there's probably about half of listeners here who have drafted a LinkedIn post and ended up not pressing publish. I think the key thing is just press, press publish. It's not going to be the first mm. post. It's not going to be the second post, but consistent posting is going to have uh, eventually reached the, the people that you want with the message that you want. And uh, you can tweak it over time. You can see what people like. You can see what you enjoy doing. So I don't have, I think it is a true persona of who I am is what I put online. I like, I like to be authentic and I like to, to share my salty takes and not hold back. And uh, the hardest thing for me to do was just to say, get that first post out, get that second post out and keep some level of consistency. Once that consistency came, I started to love and enjoy the process of distilling complex topics. And I felt in some ways, which, you know, uh, maybe is slightly egoistic that I was doing a service to my followers by sharing these posts and me not posting it maybe uh, is just mm. holding back on my contribution to, to the to the ecosystem. Yeah, that's a great framework. Exactly. It's just publishing posts on LinkedIn. It's not like we're changing the world. But if you can spark join somebody's day or get them excited to come into climate, then you know I think we've, we've done a good service. And let's be real. It does make a difference. People recognize you when you go to conferences. They hear about you. They want to engage with you. They open doors. It, it is a door opening strategy right, to be active on social media and LinkedIn. Absolutely. And so uh, another key thing here, and I, one hack is since you're, you're all about hacking. <laughs> and um, one hack that I found for me, you know, being very uh, kind of resentful to be active on social media is to actually schedule posts. And I find mm. that whenever, because there's all this sentiment and this is weird, no one is immune to this. When you post something, you check out the stats, the engagement. It's, and it's like a part of you is almost being um, evaluated every time you post something. But the hack that I found to dissociate yourself from the actual engagement is to schedule it so that mm. you, you're not the one pressing the button. You're not going to be there for the first five, 10 minutes and sort of uh, putting all your you know, ego and, and, and values out there. So scheduling it or, um, or having someone manage those posts. But obviously, that comes with a budget and maybe organizations can do this. At the personal brand level, it's a little harder. I wonder whether you, you have similar hacks. I'd say you're a far more professional LinkedIn post than myself. I didn't even know they were about the schedule feature. Uh, when I go on LinkedIn, and make a post, <laughs> I just post it right away. Uh, it's probably something that uh, I couldn't get out of my head since the morning. I tried to get, sit down to work and it's something I just have to share. Mm. And I just go on and push it out there. More and more, I'm starting to just not focus on the engagement or the analytics. Uh, it can take a lot of time. So if my hack, uh, I, I give one is just, don't spend too much time at the end of the day. The stakes are relatively low. Put it out there. 
engage with the post so that it drives up the, the the key thing is you have to actually engage in the post and respond to comments and get people to comment do it in a way that's natural and fun don't think about it too much there's a lot more important things you should be doing off linkedin elsewhere in your business and so i try not to uh, think about it too much once i post it i posted it if i regret it an hour later it's going to stay there and uh, I, I maybe we should start scheduling posts. So I'll come to you and get a few tips on that. Well, I feel like you, the wisdom that you just shared is something that I should be inspired from. <laughs> There's always a balance in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about angel investing because you are supporting a bunch of syndicates that are putting out really great climate tech deals. But many of our listeners are curious. They have not dipped their toes in angel investing. So how do you view, what kind of advice would you share to view it as part of a, diversif a diversified investment portfolio, the same way as you would invest in stocks, bonds, real estate, angel investing can be part of it. And yeah, any kind of views on this, maybe on your personal you know, uh, allocation or things that you've seen work really well. Exactly. My personal strategy probably wouldn't be what I advise anyone else to do. If you look at my personal strategies, almost all into ultra high risk uh, moonshot technology, <laughs> no, all, all in climate tech, all of my investments, I've done about 30 angel investments. They've all been in climate space. They've all been into companies wow. pre-seed to Series A. Uh, one of them has been into a fund as well. And that is typically the advice of what not to do. I'm a high risk, as we said, slightly intense person. I wanted to go through a strategy that I most believe in. And I enjoy the work of diligencing companies, learning about them, writing, my, uh, writing a check into them. I feel that even if my capital doesn't return anything, uh, it's still the process of just going through the investing into a company and learning about them is worth me spending a thousand, two thousand, five thousand dollars on. What we traditionally recommend, though, is to people have uh, angel investments and private market investments as a small part of an overall strategy. So you should be willing and ready to lose absolutely everything, especially when investing into uh, highly risky early stage moonshots. We all know that early stage companies typically have a very high uh, failure rate, and you should approach the angel investment side of your overall portfolio as one of the most risky and balance that out with less risky investments. Again, that's not what I do. So maybe you can listen to that and completely ignore it. But that's typically what most angel investors will do. And when it comes to diversification, there's multiple ways to think about it. Uh, we usually see new angel investors who come to us say, hey, look, I have a budget of 100,000 I want to invest this year. I want to do that across two companies, 50,000, 50,000. And normally we just plant the question, would it not make sense or would you like to explore potentially putting that 100,000 into 10 different companies? Therefore, you have slightly larger diversification of your portfolio. And the ones who end up doing well, the one or two in that 100,000 portfolio, you can double down on them later. And so usually we advise uh, angels who come to us to invest into more companies with fewer checks rather than few large checks across few com uh, smaller companies. How are you approaching a, a Yeah, with 100,000, you can definitely apply that the strategy with 10,000, right? So you do exactly. 1,000 uh, checks, uh, assuming that the entry ticket is that low, which uh, some syndicates allow, which is the case of, of mine. And and I'm excited, actually, to announce that I'm now running the first deal on a syndicate on Hack Capital. So I'm very glad to, to join forces on that front. We're very lucky to have you. We have a whole group of smart, talented experts in the industry. And I think exactly as you're doing today, growing an audience, building a thesis and converting that thesis into capital deployed. Investors are coming around you because they know, Johan, they know your history, they know all activities you do. And that also allows you to get into the best companies because ultimately a syndicate's job is 
how can I pick win and diligence allocations into the best companies? And that typically uh, is driven by people who have influence in the industry or knowledge in the industry. And we're super excited to have you with us. Uh, so I know your first deal is live with us today. Obviously, we can't share the deal details, but anyone who wants can go check that out. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for uh, for the plug here. And let's let's continue on the angel investment path. So one of the questions that is recurring since I run a training is what kind of added value if angel investor can provide in a fundraising round, meaning beyond the, just the capital, um, any any thoughts here to share on what in the angel investment uh, journey People expect to be super hands-on, provide a lot of help, and then continuously be part of the story. But maybe um, can you sh- shed, you know, shed a bit more light on on the reality check of it, early stage and as the company grows. It's a great question, and I'll probably say something quite controversial to kick it off, which is ninety-nine percent of your angels will not be more value-add than the capital they invest, and that's completely okay. An angel investor is mm-hmm. giving you their hard-earned cash in exchange for equity of your company. And if that's all they do, that's a fair agreement that both of you entered into. Anything additional to that is, a, is really a bonus. But there will be that, let's say, 5% of investors in your round who are extremely valuable. And I can really only speak from our own experience, but three key things that we've got value add from our angel investors. One is unlocking capital that was external to us. Two is converting our angels into super fans. And three is bringing in external knowledge. I'll break those down. When it comes to your fundraising, uh, bringing new capital outside of your network is key for you to be able to fill out, let's say, a $3 million round. In our case, one of our early angel investors who put in a check of 1000 directly and indirectly by way of the introductions that happened after the first ones he made, opened up the path to an additional 500000 So that was over a 100x return on bringing in an angel investor for 1000 who brought in an additional 500000 the same thing happened with another angel in our round. He put in 5,000, he brought in about 50,000. So one thing you should really be thinking about as you go out and raise a round, does this angel investor have other relevant contacts who might potentially be able to open the door to other angels, VCs or family offices who could come to my round? And if so, you should make sure that the ticket that they're investing initially isn't the limiting factor for them to be able to support you. Because if you tell everybody, hey, you need to have 50,000 in order to invest into my round, there's someone here happy to give you 5,000 and open the way to larger tickets. You should really ask yourself, uh, is this what I want to do? Do I want to bring this person in? Can they help me? The second one is converting into super fans. So I think it's more about a competitive strategy. If an angel investor invests into your round, they're more likely to use your product and or not use your competitor's product. And so we've seen that firsthand with ourselves. A lot of the angels who invest into our round now use Hack Capital to structure their own deals, have invested into other deals through us, or just make sure to send old traffic to us versus the nearest competition to us. And that can just be a great tactic to, to be able to acquire some of the market. And the last one, which I think is the more, most tricky one, is bringing external knowledge. I think it's down to founders to, to build the knowledge. The whole goal that people are giving you, you money and giving you trust is that you know something better and deeper than them. And therefore, there's no one else who you can bring an external who should know more than you. In some cases, that might be different. In some cases, that might be untrue. In our case, we're entering into the, the financial services industry. And there, there's a lot of deep learning that we can externalize from one of our angel investors who's been in the space for a while, as well as contacts. If you know anything about the, the financial industry, it's all very much a, a who's who, who knows who industry. And if it wasn't for one of our angel investors, we, weren't, we wouldn't be able to work with some of the customers and some of the service providers we work with today. And so 
external knowledge and external network can be useful. But typically, when an angel investor comes in, they'll just give you the money. That'll be the end of it. And that's completely okay. And in the third event where a person brings on knowledge and network, how should founders approach the idea of compensating or involving angel investors as advisors? Uh, any thoughts you can share on equity versus other forms of compensation? Absolutely. In our case, what we did is we actually brought everybody on as angel investors first. And I think I always advise companies to do that. If somebody's asking for advisory, which we see quite a lot of, you know, maybe it's an ex-corporate, maybe it's someone from the, the venture world, they come to you saying, hey, I can help your company a lot, but I want advisory shares. I typically say, great, invest in our round first. Let's build a relationship and report together. You seem to love what we're doing. I'd love for you to be involved in us. And then we can talk about advisory later. So first establish that they invest into your round and support you first and foremost. And, and then later on, they can prove themselves to you as much as you need to prove yourselves to them. In this case, they're asking for advisory shares. You're asking them for support. And so it's fair to give something as long as there's equal value. So what we did is we raised our round first. We brought everybody on as an angel investor. And then those who naturally stepped up to give us advice and their advice or knowledge was worthwhile, we retroactively said, we'd love to offer you advisory equity. Uh, would you be open to that? And that's how we set it up. And I think it's the most natural way. What we often see happening, especially with more technical founders, they spin out of university or they're just forming. They have a lot of different uh, teachers or supporters around there who say, hey, I'd love to be part of what you're building. I'm not willing to invest, but if you give me advisory shares, I'm happy to put my, you know, my, my time into it. And not saying all the time, but a lot of the time, that advisory equity wasn't worth giving out at such an early stage. And if anything, it causes more complexity and frustration later on. The founder with the advisor and then the founder would later in the stage investors who say, why did you give two, 3% of your company to this individual who uh, isn't really providing as much value as you are? Yeah. And, and, and you know what? I'm, I'm going to actually go in, you know, even further in that direction. I, as I worked in Silicon Valley, I, I saw a lot of, you know, in industries like fintech or HR tech or even biotech, uh, very interested, self-interested people where advisors, the conversation started, okay, if you can hand me 0.5%, 1% of your company, then I can allocate my time and energy to it. And I've seen this narrative completely flipped around in climate tech where it comes from the values and people don't come with any kind of self-interest. They want to join that overall, you know, humanity, save humanity mission. And, um, a little story about Climentum Capital. So when you raise a fund, you actually allocate a subset of the carry, right? The, the sort of upside for uh, potential advisors or people that will help with the due diligence or source deals, et cetera, et cetera, for venture partner, all the kind of roles. And so when we raise Climentum Capital, we set a decent chunk of you know, carry that, you know, interest for that. And as a matter of fact, three years into the journey, I don't think any of that percentage has been allocated because no one asked. People want to tag along. They want to be, they want to make this part of, you know, the kind of stories they tell their friends, their family, their sons, their daughters, you know, they want to say in their children, you know, 10 years, I, this is what I did, you know, to help save humanity. So it's, it's a massive differentiator. I find that there's no industry like this other than climate tech. And so founders, it is to your benefit. Founders of funds, founders of startups do not allocate, you know, shares too early. And if, anything, you might not have to do it. Um, they just help out, you know, and I, I see that there's a lot of, um, there's, there's, uh, it comes from the goodness of, of people's heart most of the time. 
be it technical profiles or financial profiles. Absolutely. I, I fully agree. And I really think that's key is that those who want to help will help regardless of whatever you offer them. I think one thing I'd love to touch on is I know you're growing your syndicate right now and you explore the idea of empowering your angels to refer deals to your support in terms of diligence and explore the idea of potentially giving them a percentage of the carry as well. Is that something you still feel quite bullish on that the community around your syndicate can help unlock and therefore you should give uh, some upside to them or how are you seeing that play out? Yeah, so it starts with the sort of big picture. The macro trend that I'm observing now is that you have an army of people that just want to do something. They want to be pointed at the right direction and say, tell me what I need to do to get involved in that climate story, because that's all that makes sense to me. And unfortunately, I cannot quit my job. I'm tied up. I have financial responsibilities. I need to pay my mortgage, so I can't quit and join you know, a full-time climate job. So one way to do this is to start allocating your money, becoming an angel investor, or helping out on due diligence, or et cetera, et cetera. There's so many ways to do this. And so... I think that's micro trend will continue. Like there will be hundreds of thousands of people joining the climate fight. And my wh- wh- the way I structured my syndicate is I don't want that to be a sort of organizational clunky structure. I want that to have baked in network effect. And the best network effect is for people to be empowered with a mission to say that's kind of their baby as well, to have part of the upside. The upside uh, through if there is kind of, you know, upfront commission with a success fee or if you charge sort of a management fee on each SPV. So for each deal, uh, anyone that brings on people to invest should be compensated and because it, it really involves them in the story. And if they bring on someone in the syndicate, that means that that person will probably invest alongside, you know, us more in the future. So it means that. There's the more nodes to the network, the more valuable the network. That is the ultimate network effect. So I'm experimenting. I want to see how we can push that both on the upside to carry, but also just the fees up front. And hopefully that can create a machine that fuels itself. And if I say longer term, I definitely want to inspire others to replicate that kind of model in other regional areas like Latin America, Africa, Asia, where I'm never going to be able to have you know, the bandwidth to cover. And, and also maybe in sub-verticals, you know, carbon capture, uh, hydrogen, as they emerge and require a lot more pre-seed, you know, funding, people can just replicate that. And I would definitely be supportive and, you know, help them spin off a, their own syndicates. That is how you create systemic change. I'm super excited by what you just said. And I think yeah, I can see how charged and excited you are as well. I, while I have you answering questions, I just want to flip the table. Why launch a syndicate? Why was that the right structure and vehicle? You know, we built our own syndicate as well. We ran uh, investments into about two years, uh, did about about 23 investments with a group of 200 angel investors. So we've also explored a very similar setup where we empowered the community to help us because the community we built through Food and Climate Hack was really there and willing to help. Why was the syndicate the right structure for you? And what should others know before starting a syndicate of their own? Because I'm sure many others are exploring the idea themselves. Mm. Uh, well, I'm still trying to figure it out. That's the truth, right? And it's uh, kind of the reverse evolution. People start with SPVs, syndicates, it's lower fees, it's not as clunky and heavy as a, a fund, a VC fund legal structure. But I did the opposite. I started with a full-blown fund, pretty sizable, and now I'm trying to go down the syndicate level. Uh, partly because I, I want to experiment how a bottom-up approach instead of a top-down. Top-down is very much you you create a fund with enormous assets under management and you try to scale that. So you have more dry powder to you know invest in more companies, et cetera, et cetera. 
But I realized that that doesn't scale as much as creating a, a syndicate or an army of syndicate that can deploy to hundreds of kind of deals. And also I realized that pre-seed seed is really the matter of life or death. This is a, when crazy entrepreneurs uh, are basically broke. They either go to their friends and family or they go out to network of angels. And, and uh, today there's still a, a, a shortfall. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a shortage of that kind of supply versus other areas like in the US where there's plenty you know, of kind of syndicates to back crazy founders. So I think in terms of the bottom up approach is probably going to lead more impact. You know, I definitely uh, want to see that evolve in the next 10 years. I'm curious how it's going to turn out. But and and um, I've, I've been advised against you know, running syndicates because it is messy. You know, it requires <laughs> to follow up a lot, to chase people down, to make sure they wire your, the money. Um, so hopefully that platform, Hack Capital, can optimize that process to make it really easy so that the syndicate leads can focus on their two things they're really great at is bringing quality investors alongside them. So bringing a, you know, a, 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 a cohort of uh, investors and that can scale quite well. And then um, uh, identify the best deals, you know, identify the outlier founders with great narratives and great stories that require that, that funding. So I want to focus on that, offset the rest, and hopefully that can you know, be quite smooth and inspire a lot more people to follow suit. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're already seeing it with the syndicate deals that you're doing. And one thing we're noticing that sort of ties upon everything that we covered of growing an audience advisory and running a syndicate is we're seeing more and more angel investors who are investing through company essentially turn into a deal lead. And what that essentially means is this angel is putting a $10,000 check into company X and they believe that John Doe, Jennifer, Jessica, and everybody else would be interested as well. And so they do the work of sort of representing uh, the company to other angel investors and leading a deal doing the memo, structuring the diligence uh, as needed for an angel investor and attracting other angels to come in and do an overall larger ticker. So that 10,000 has turned into 200,000. And for that, of course, the angels should be uh, compensated as well. And so they might set some level of fees or carry for doing that. So I think we're even having a new, completely uh, different, you know, there we have funds, we have syndicates, we have angel investors. Now we have sort of this intermediary uh, between the angels and the syndicate, which is a deal lead. I think that can be super powerful and supercharging rounds with even more angel investors to come into the space because now a trusted person in the industry is bringing in their own investor group as well and they're incentivized to do so. So I'm very excited for the future of angel investing when it comes to climate tech. And again, we're very lucky to have you. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. And the final note I'll add to that because for me, I always, again, look at the micro picture. And for me, it's just a start. It's just a way to bend the system using the hook, the most important hook that we have now at our disposal, which is capital, capital allocation. And, and people just want to make money. At the end of the day, they also have financial constraint. They need their financial freedom. They need to live and make a living. And I really think that investing in climate tech, which is one of the, the you know, venture capital is to historically outperform other asset classes. I believe climate tech will outperform the rest of venture capital. And I think this is only the start, the start of a J curve. So I think it's a very savvy investment to do now, especially in this kind of winter where the, we're in the valley of valuations. But I really also think that it goes deeper than that, than just the financial side, you know, the dry kind of financial allocation side. And it's much more deep and it creates a bit of a physiolog physiological change in people that start investing. And whenever I go to family events or kind of events, uh, you know, where I travel around the world, people have never heard of climate tech. But as soon as they hear the story, 
that you can invest in innovation that can change the world and get us closer to a fully transformed, sustainable world. That, does, that sparks you know, curiosity. And a lot of people that have never heard of venture capital or even startups, stuff like that, they say, count me in. And dude, if you can lower the ticket to 1,000, that is really you know, you know, uh, in my playground. So it, it resonates a lot. And I, I really hope that we can almost get away from the venture capital scene and make it more of an asset class that is super affordable. A bit like what crypto has managed to do in a way, mainstreamifying the space so that anyone, retail investors, can dip their toes. Obviously, without the crazy volatility that we're observing <laughs> in crypto. It's still worth mentioning, though, that early stage climate tech moonshots are extremely risky. And uh, it's also sure. should be, as you said, overall part of the portfolio strategy. And decreasing the ticket essentially allows us to decrease the risk because you can make many more bets across the, the space. And I know that everyone should Absolutely. be investing uh, in the mind of financial return. And I think climate tech will give outsized returns. But I think one of the things you get when you invest into climate or impact is a sense of purpose or a sense of uh, you're doing good. Instead of going to spend maybe $2,000 on that holiday, which was probably going to end up regretting when you come back, you can put it into a company which is going to use that capital to essentially hire someone or obviously not hire someone on 2000 but the cumulative amount that they raise will allow them to hit their next milestones. And that can feel extremely rewarding to do. And that's why I think in impact investing is, is something that is completely separate from investing as a whole, because you can really feel a purpose when you start investing into great companies. Mm -hmm. 300%. And I want to take the, the, the last couple of minutes of this interview, time is flying, is to talk about Hack Summit, your, your series of event, your conference, any kind of key takeaways that you can derive or, or unexpected learnings from the event that you've been running so far? And maybe tell us about the future. How is this going to progress in the future? Happy to. So the 2022 Hack Summit was very different from the 2023 Summit. We were definitely still in the boom times in 2022. And we could feel that in the event. Deals were being made. There was an energy of let's meet, let's invest. Rounds are closing. I want to get in. And 2023 was slightly different. Of course, there's a bit of a slowdown in capital deployment. And the thing that surprised me the most was actually the pressure that VCs were feeling on their side. I think the founders and the VCs hadn't met for a while in our Hack Summit in May was a great opportunity for the climate world to finally meet uh, after maybe a year of not seeing each other and just think, what the hell is happening? And I think uh, one thing that we really noticed is that VC funds were feeling the pressure to go out and raise the next fund. They were feeling the pressure that they might not be able to close their funds at the original size they targeted, or that their LPs might not draw down the entire amount into their fund. And this pressure trickled down into the companies as well in the room who felt that maybe VCs were uh, less, less active to make business, uh, less there to make deals, and, and things were happening a lot slower. It was still incredibly valuable to both the founders and the investors in the room to, to meet. But I think the key change was the fact that things are happening much slower and there is pressure on VCs, which will trickle down onto the companies. Uh, and that's the key thing I observed. But now it's been a few months since May. It does feel like capital deployment has sped up a bit. You just come back from uh, the drop in Malmo. What are you seeing? What are you reading in the ecosystem? The interest is there. The dry powder is uh, is proven, right? They were counting billions of dollars still sitting on the sideline. But there's, uh, uh, you know, uh, I see fund managers that are uh, in the uncertainty that this winter might get extended by years, 
and not months, in which case they need to slow down their deployment to make sure they don't have to go back to the market to raise more LP money, which is extremely tight at the moment. Um, but there's no, there's still enormous bullishness on the fact that this is the time to act. This is the decade of action. 2030 is the war, you know, against a lot of, you know, where, where corporates and governments will probably hit really hard if they don't commit massively to this climate cause. And so I, I predict, and I am, I'm, I'm very vocal about it, that 2026, 2027 will probably be a turning point where there, there has been definitely a, a bit of a sort of a, a, a excitement, let's say in the 2021 sort of high, but that excitement is nothing compared to what's coming up for the second part of this decade. And we'll see an explosion of M&A activities, you know, corporates buying out startup innovation to incorporate that in their portfolio so they can decarbonize their activities. So it is, it feels like a temporary valley to me. And I think mm -hmm. everyone is super excited, bullish. There's more and more data on brand new sectors such as carbon capture, you know, carbon removal, hydrogen. We're learning. We're learning from real applications. And, and uh, the fact that it's a very collaborative space, it's knowledge is spreading much faster than it would if it was kind of isolated startups. Those events are super, super important. And, and I, really, um, I, I really appreciate you know, the, the, the drop as sort of, it's a bit of a family reunion. So where you, 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 you go one level deeper, you build those bonds that can last for, for years, if not decades. Absolutely. And I think you're completely right. There are more and more people entering climate every day. We see it. We see it everything from our meetups to our newsletter subscribers to the amount of requests we get. And so this, there was a momentary slowdown, but it does feel like we're ramping up for 2026 to be the best years in terms of both capital deployment, companies formed and talented into the ecosystem. And so we're very excited for the summit next year. We had uh, 500 people the first year, 1,000 people the second year, and the third year we'll probably go close to 2,000 because as you probably saw the drop, more and more people want to come into the space and we got to increase the size. And, and the, the final question I would have for you, this is a question I get asked almost on a daily basis. My friends, uh, you know, people uh, you know, around me that want to penetrate the space, but they see it still as a high barrier to entry or they expect that they need a skill set that they're lacking. So since you're at that front line and you, you know, both on LinkedIn, but also your, 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 your conferences is probably the, the gateway, right? The on-ramp for people to join the climate fight. What kind of advice do you share with them when they say, well, uh, where can I find a job or where can, what's the entry point? Should I become an operator or an allocator? And, and they're scared that they don't have what it takes. Great question. Something which I funnily enough wrote on LinkedIn multiple times. I think there are so many ways to enter into the climate tech space, but typically I boil it down to four key things that are most impactful. Start a climate tech company, work at a climate tech company, fund a climate tech company, or research climate tech companies. All of those have varying levels of uh, admission, complexity, and commitment, and time, and resources, and skills. But the easiest one is to just simply learn about a topic that you're excited by, regurgitate that knowledge to yourself, where maybe you share with family and friends, maybe you write about it, maybe you share LinkedIn posts about it, and eventually work up that, that ladder. Maybe now you start angel investing to companies through the Climate School Syndicate. Maybe you apply for a few roles in climate tech companies because they're hiring all types of different things. I think a, mis, uh, a miscommunication is that climate tech companies are only looking for technical people. No, they're looking for accountants. They're looking for uh, legal people. They're looking for receptionists. Every That's single right. role is needed in climate tech today. And then if at some point you feel, hey, I, I really want to do something on my own. I've been angel investing. I've been learning about this space. 
go and start a climate tech company. And there's plenty of resources, which I can link to as well at the end, that help you start a climate tech company, mm -hmm. like a venture studio or a fund or accelerator that allow you to work in climate tech companies like Climate Base or Climate Draft, and then fund companies, whether that's us, whether that's Carbon Equity, whether that's uh, WeFunder. There's plenty of opportunities out there, so there's no excuse. Uh, you just put your mind to it, spend a bit of time in it, and you can get into climate tech in the next, by the end of the year. Awesome. Yes, please share those resources so we can link them up in the show notes. And I really want to thank you, Anatok, uh, Arman, uh, because I, I, I always feel inspired by your, your journey. It's really insightful. I'm glad to have you on, the, on this show, and hopefully that can inspire so many others to, to join this fight. So thank you very much. Thanks so much, Jan, for having me. I'm excited to finally meet next May. Yes, and to all of you, as always, thanks for tuning in. See you soon. If you haven't already, sign up for my weekly newsletter. Along with receiving updates about each new episode, you will also get one actionable insight every Saturday to boost your career, fund, or startup. My newsletter is value-packed, authentic, and full of unique insights. This newsletter is also the best way to join our growing community of climate investors. We found that building a community is probably the ultimate force multiplier, and it gives us the momentum we need to create profound change. Let's share and collaborate. I'm just here to empower you to get started and set you on a path to success so our collective ideas can flourish and expand. Come join us to drive huge impacts. If you haven't already, sign up for my weekly newsletter. Along with receiving updates about each new episode, you will also get one actionable insight every Saturday to boost your career, fund, or startup. My newsletter is value-packed authentic and full of unique insights. This newsletter is also the best way to join our growing community of climate investors. We found that building a community is probably the ultimate force multiplier and it gives us the momentum we need to create profound change. Let's share and collaborate. I'm just here to empower you to get started and set you on a path to success so our collective ideas can flourish and expand. Come join us to drive huge impacts.